0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, a senior writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us for what I hope will be a very timely and practical conversation on investing during stressful times. I'm delighted to have New York Times bestselling author and psychologist Dr. Daniel Crosby as my guest. Daniel is Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions and also host of the podcast, Standard Deviations. Welcome, Daniel.
1: Thanks, Lauren. It's great to be here.
0: Well, it's wonderful to have you here. I'd love to start the conversation with some broad perspective on volatility. You know, The theme of today's show is investing during stressful times, and there's no denying that the past couple of months, certainly the past couple of years, have been stressful you know we've had a global pandemic and now you know war in ukraine so you've done some research into market volatility so let's start there tell us what you found and perhaps why knowing some history might help investors during periods like this
1: well it's a great question lauren and i'm i'm a believer that that happiness is reality minus expectations so i think our expectations of how markets uh, will operate are highly predictive of of how happy are, we are with our results and how uh, well we are able to behave. So what I think most people don't understand is just how average many of the things that we've been through recently are from a market perspective. Now, there's nothing average about the last two years by any sort of stretch of the imagination, but I think that we can confuse the the, uh, the the craziness, the wildness of the last two years on it from a personal front, with how wild it it really is not from a market perspective. Mm-hmm. So if we look uh, since World War II, there have been eighty four declines of about ten percent, and in fact we we have come to expect these about every sixteen months on average, but the average recovery time has been about one month. So. Every time there's a 10% dip in the markets, I think that the media and indeed investors treat it like it's the end of the world. Uh, But if we look back over even the last 40 years, the average intra-year drawdown has been about 15%. So this really happens about as regularly uh, as your birthday. And yet we treat it as if this is this wild sort of unknown thing that we've never seen before. And what's fascinating is that corrections are rarely market tops. Uh, If we look since 1950, 22 of the the 32 corrections we've had since 1950 uh, have never reached full bear market status of of 20% drawdown. Uh, And indeed, as we talk today, we're only down uh, with with a war in Europe, with uh, heightening COVID cases in some parts of the world. We're really only down about 3% on the year in the S&P. So these things happen, I think, a lot more regularly than we give credit for, uh, to. And the markets are on average really quite resilient and tend to snap back uh, in fairly short order.
0: So the market sounds like it's resilient, but what about investors? I mean, they tend to panic when they feel this volatility. And and what should they be doing in periods like this? Does it help them to have that retrospective to know it's a cycle, it will come back, things will be okay?
1: Yeah, I really really think that perspective matters a lot. And that's why educating folks on on these sorts of statistics that we've just talked about is, is so important, and, you know, when you look at the behavior of market participants uh, during even the worst of COVID, most folks really stayed the course. And that, that accounts for, the, of course, the, the rapid snapback uh, in, in values. But most people did a really good job. And I think, I think one of the things, if there is an upside to all of the tumult of the last, you know, 20 or so years It's that folks are learning the lesson in a very visceral way that staying the course, remaining patient uh, and, and sticking with your plan is the thing to do. So I think this perspective is important and I think it's important to to tease apart the humanitarian impact of some world events from the market impact. You know, the the humanitarian crisis in in Ukraine is undeniable. And we are rightly moved, we are rightly emotional, we are, you know, uh, correctly pulled to action with respect to to being charitable and and trying to find ways to to lessen human suffering. But when we look at uh, the way that markets usually react to geopolitical events, if we look since World War II, the, the average drawdown in sort of a large war or a geopolitical event has been about 6%. Uh, and the recovery time has taken about a month and a half. So I think sometimes there can uh, be a tendency to conflate the human toll of a geopolitical event with its market toll, and those things tend to be uh, distinct considerations.
0: So let's spend a little bit of time on human behavior. You know, you're an expert on the psychology of investing, and I mentioned in the intro that you're an author, your most recent book is The Behavioural Investor and that explores you know, how sociology, psychology and neurology all impact investment decision making and often we are our own worst enemy when it comes to making decisions. Walk us through like, the four primary behavioural pitfalls and perhaps give the audience some simple ways to address each of them.
1: Yeah, great question. So I'll, I'll sort of take them one at a time and, and talk about what we can do in writing the behavioral investor. Lauren, one of my goals was to simplify the universe of investor misbehavior, because there has been this huge proliferation of of research, which is great uh, into all the ways that were fallible and irrational and, and deviate from from sort of perfect utility seeking. Uh, But the bad news is that there's now over 200 documented ways that we can sort of get this wrong. And that's not necessarily useful information, you know, to be told, look, there's 200 ways that you can mess this up. Good luck. And so what I did was I looked at those 200 and some odd biases and, and found that there were just about four primary meta biases that underpin them. And they are ego, emotion, attention, and conservatism. So I'll I'll take those one at a time. Ego is the various forms of of overconfidence. Uh, It really has three parts. It's believing that we're we're better than average. You know, we're smarter, uh, funnier, better looking, et cetera, than average. We're all sort of familiar with those studies. Um, It also means, though, that we believe that we're luckier than average. Uh, We tend to own the optimistic and delegate the dangerous. And and that we're more prescient about the future than average. So the the net net of this is that we sort of move through the world, thinking that we're better informed and better equipped than than we actually are. So there's there's a few things we can do about this to overcome it. The first and easiest thing is is candidly just to diversify our portfolios. Uh, Diversification is really sort of the embodiment of humility and just sort of shrugging your shoulders and saying, look, I don't, I don't know what's going to do well next, but I do know that I'm going to own it. You know, another thing that uh, the, the great scientist and science educator Richard Feynman talked about was, was something that he calls teaching about toilets. So he did this quirky thing where he would ask people, uh, if they knew how a toilet worked. And indeed, most people said, you know, yeah, I, I do know how a toilet works. And he would say, OK, well, great. Uh, teach me how a toilet works. And when they were put on the spot uh, to, to teach a construct, they realized that, you know, they use a toilet every day, but they don't have any real sense of how it works. So the analog for investors is if, if we want to, if we feel passionately about uh, something, about an investment, one of the best things that we can do to expose the the shortfalls in our thinking is to teach other people or to explain it to someone who has no understanding of, of this idea or how markets work. That does a great job of exposing uh, flaws in our thinking. And then the final sort of practical uh, application that I'd mentioned here, there's, there's of course more in the book, but is, is what's called a, a premortem, which is sort of anticipating the worst possible result before we get started. So we say, okay, I'm going to make this investment if five years from now, or you know, two years from now, whatever your timeline is, if, if five years from now I'm, I'm sitting here and this has gone horribly wrong, what are the reasons why it went wrong? And so sort of anticipating the worst case uh, beforehand can allow us to to check our overconfidence and to uh, and to check sort of our own thinking and to prepare uh, for ways that can that can sort of mitigate that that worst case. So I'll, I'll let you jump in if you'd like before I go on to the others.
0: No, no, that's all great. Keep going.
1: So the second one is is emotion and one of the fascinating pieces of research I found when, when putting the book together was that our, our emotions sort of overwhelm our thinking when we're in a period of stress, which I think uh, we've, we've all been in for, for the last two years in, in one form or another. And when these emotions overwhelm our cognitive processing power, we actually lose about 13% of our IQ. Uh, and, you know, the standard deviation for IQ is, is 15. So you're, you're basically down one standard deviation in terms of, of how sharp you are with, with respect to thinking about markets at the very moment when you need it most. So, you know, what do we do about this? Well, one thing that I tell folks is to, to take a to, to take this this acronym from the addiction literature, which is HALT uh, in the 12 step programs you learn. Uh, that HALT stands for hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. The idea being you should never make a big critical life decision when you are in any of these states. And indeed the research backs up quite dramatically that that sound decision-making and intense emotion, whether good or bad, are our enemies. So just avoid heightened decision-making, uh, avoid decision-making in, in periods of heightened emotion altogether. Uh, The the second thing to do would be to look at the base rates. You know, you go back to some of the stats we talked about earlier, and uh, everyone's talking earlier this year about the sky is falling. And you say, okay, the market was down, I think 12 or 13% at its its worst. You go, well, uh, from a base rate perspective, how bad is this? And you go, oh, this happens every 16 months. You know, this is not unusual. This is nothing to be worried about. This is nothing to be emotional about. And and then the final one is a little bit tricky uh, because it's actually to use emotion to to your benefit. Uh, We know from the research that there's no such thing as an unemotional decision. Every decision has an emotional substrate and and people who have had the emotional processing centers of their brains uh, impacted or injured. Are actually unable to make even simple decisions like, you know, what flavor of ice cream to buy or what, what color suit to wear, because even a simple decision like that has an emotional substrate. So how do we use emotion in our favor? Well, we, we name our goals and we align our dollars with our values. You know, there's evidence to suggest that people who invest in socially responsible ways are better behaved. Uh, because their investments are meaningful to them. There's research to suggest that people who sort of uh, think about their children or, or reflected on a picture of their children for five seconds before making a financial decision save twice as much as a control group. So there are ways in which we can make emotion um, work to better our decision making and, and not to inhibit it. Uh, the third of the four is attention Uh, which is our tendency to confuse what is loud or what is newsworthy with with what is likely. And the simple piece of advice I'd give here is that your environment is a much better predictor of your behavior than your intentions. Uh, One of the, I think, real shortfalls of of Western thinking and Western philosophy is that we tend to think that we are who we are in, in every context. Whereas in other parts of the world, there's this idea of, you know, quite naturally, Daniel at church and Daniel at work and, you know, Daniel on a date there are, are, are different animals than, than you know, th- these are all different people. I think in the U.S. in particular, we have this idea of rugged individualism and sort of deep focus on personality that leads us to overlook environmental factors. So, Uh, If you're looking to make great decisions, be careful about your information diet uh, and, and make sure that your portfolio is maximized to help you take the ride and not some sort of spreadsheet or mathematical optimal that doesn't account for human behavior. And then finally, we have conservatism, which is our tendency to be risk averse, to be loss averse and confuse what we know with what is good. And honestly, Lauren, some of the most powerful research here just comes from putting off a decision. Uh, the, the spell of conservatism is, is broken in a very big way when people just literally sleep on it. You know, when, uh, when people are hurried uh, to give a response, 82% of the time when given a response between two, two choices, they, they stick with the thing that they know And it's almost 50-50 between equal choices when people are just given a little time. Uh, There's also fascinating research to show that people who are bilingual make better decisions, better financial decisions, when they're considering uh, their financial lives in their non-dominant language. So when when they're thinking about money in, in the language with which they're less fluent, They have to be slower, they have to be more deliberative and more thoughtful, and they make better decisions. So I think there's a lesson in there for all of us to hit the brakes, to slow down, to procrastinate a little bit, uh, and we're we're likely to make less uh, sort of excessively conservative decisions.
0: Such great advice, Daniel. Thank you. Just a quick reminder to the audience that if you've got questions, please do submit them and I'll get to questions towards the end of the conversation. So, Daniel, you mentioned risk aversion a moment ago, and I know you've got some unique ideas about risk tolerance and how to assess one's own risk tolerance. I'd love to hear about that and I guess what it might mean for individual investors.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that we've done at Orion is we've we've created a three-part measure of risk that we think better represents uh, the the behavioral element of risk. So the way that we talk about risk in the industry is is sometimes a little bit sloppy, candidly. So a little definitional work is, I think, important up front. From an academic sense, risk tolerance is that portion of your risk-taking behavior that is unchanging? So we see that risk tolerance is really people's long-term willingness to make risk reward trade-offs. And that is actually very stable across good markets and bad markets. I mean, if you asked someone um, you know, who was who was panic selling in, in March of 2020, you know, hey, is 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 this what you ought to be doing? Is this, you know, is this wise? They would go, you know, no but <laughs> I, want, I want to do it anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So risk tolerance is these sort of long-term unchanging attitudes. Uh, risk capacity is your ability to take risk. And this is going to load onto things like your age, uh, your, your level of wealth and the size of your goals. So all else being equal, um, you know, people who, have, uh, who are younger, people who are wealthier have more risk capacity. So that's all kind of the, the meat and potatoes of it. The third piece that I think is seldom talked about and seldom measured is risk composure. And risk composure is the behavioral or psychological element. And it effectively means how likely is it that a short-term emotional reaction is going to override your long-term goals? And so that's why when, when we talk about risk behavior changing, risk-taking behavior does change. Those long-term attitudes by and large have not changed, but the emotion of a moment has overwhelmed that long-term attitudinal uh, direction. So it really is important that we as an industry uh, sort of up our game a little bit here and measure all three dimensions of risk uh, because if we're just measuring tolerance or even tolerance and capacity, We're missing out a great deal on what people's actual risk-taking behavior looks like, and that's leading us to design portfolios that are mathematically optimal or sort of spreadsheet optimal, but are not behaviorally optimal and don't have real-world application.
0: That's great. That's really practical. So, you know, uh, Daniel, one of your roles at Orion is behavioral coaching, and I've heard you mention this sort of knowing-doing gap what's your advice for you know, financial advisors who may be listening in on coaching clients through these very volatile markets?
1: Yeah, a, a quick word on the knowing-doing gap. My favorite, my favorite stat here uh, that, that illustrates that there's lots of good ones, but my favorite stat is that uh, doctors and nurses smoke at a rate that's, that's considerably higher than the average population. So nurses smoke at, <clears throat> at nearly double the rate of the average American. And so here you have well-educated, smart, good-hearted people who spend their days lecturing us on the dangers of of, bad bad health behaviors. And then after hours go home and and do the very thing that they've counseled us not to do. And we even see this in advisor portfolios. You know, uh, there's no doubt that financial advisors help their clients Uh, make great decisions. We know from research out of Canada that the impact of working with an advisor is really dramatic, that people who had a long-term relationship with an advisor had 2.73 times the wealth of their peers who had gone it alone uh, and who were uh, apples to apples on 50 different socioeconomic variables. So, So holding things like salary constant, those who work with an advisor do a lot better And yet we know that when advisors manage their own money, it's often a mess and they often fall prey to all of the same mistakes that they spend all day counseling uh, their clients against. So I think if we're going to really move the needle on human behavior, which is really hard to change, we need to intervene across three dimensions. And I call it my three E's. Uh, The first of these is education. You know, we need to educate our clients about how markets work, about uh, sort of what a reasonable return expectation is, the benefits of compounding and diversification, all the stuff we know, right? Um, the uh, a recent study found that found that investors are expecting a seventeen percent annualized return over the next ten years, and when their when their expectations are so misaligned with what is likely to be uh you know likely to be the result uh, i think there can be frustration and there could be bad behavior so the base of the pyramid is is financial education <clears throat> next though we go to the environment which is you know sort of back to our risk tolerance conversation the environment that the the, the water that that client is swimming in is of, is of course their portfolio And that portfolio needs to account not only for their long-term attitudes, but their short-term emotional dislocations and needs to address all of those things and put them in an environment that is going to maximize the likelihood that they stay the course. And then finally is encouragement. All right. We need uh, that last line of defense. We need those advisors who are there ready to uh, talk their clients out of a bad decision but it really takes all three layers, and I think it takes them in that order. You need the right education, the right environment, and then we need to have the interpersonal skills to offer that encouragement uh, and that support in, in the critical moment.
0: So is this what we call sort of sticky advice? So, so you give advice and it actually sticks?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, there's a there's a great book called, I didn't write it, but there's a great <laughs> book called it uh, by Moira Summers, uh, who is uh, coming up on an upcoming episode of my podcast, and it's called Advice That Sticks, and it's a wonderful primer uh, into some of these ideas if if folks are interested in that. But, you know, Lauren, we we know that currently about 40% of Americans receive some sort of advice, uh, but less than half of them follow through on that advice, and, and we see that across contexts. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the leading causes of death in the U.S., is people who have gotten sick, who have gone to the doctor and have gotten medication that would cure them, not taking that medication is one of the leading causes of death. And it's totally preventable. So we need to be thinking about not only are we giving good advice, which is almost universally the case, Mm -hmm. but are we giving advice in a way uh, that makes it easily implementable and that's consistent with, with human behavior?
0: So that three-part sort of pyramid that you just outlined is obviously a great sort of rubric for advisors and their clients. What about individual investors who may be listening in who don't have a relationship with a financial advisor? How should they be applying this to their processes?
1: Well, the 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 first two levels of the pyramid are, I think, still very much intact. And I think the most powerful thing that an individual investor can do is to automate their process. You know, anytime we've we've talked a lot about, about bias and human irrationality today, but one thing that is, uh, I think, uh, a golden rule of managing all of this is that anytime we can make a human tendency work for us instead of against us, we are going to be in good stead. And so you think about this conservatism bias that I talked about earlier, which is our tendency to be sort of lazy and status quo prone, uh, it doesn't sound great on the surface. And indeed, there are ways that it cannot be great. But if we automate, you know, if, if we automate the way that we uh, withdraw money and save money each every two weeks, if we automate the process by which we invest and we just stick to those rules, um, we can actually make that human tendency towards inertia work, work for us. And so automating your process getting the right education and and having the right environment i think are are a powerful recipe for success for individual investors
0: great i'm just going to pop over to some uh, audience questions um lee says one of my favorite market maxims is there are old traders and there are bold traders but there are no old bold traders do you feel this principle too is a lesson uh, for a successful long-term investor must learn?
1: Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of sort of nonsense. Wall Street maxims, I think that's a good one. So just to dig into the, the research a little bit, um, the largest study of day traders ever conducted uh, found that about one in 360 of the day traders surveyed showed real evidence of skill. Uh, We also know from research that's been done in in 19 different countries that the more active someone is within their portfolio, sort of the more they're trading in and out of positions, the worse they tended to do. And that's a stepwise relationship. So they, you know, they break it out into deciles and and the more you trade, the worse you do. And so I think that... um, sizing positions, being patient, doing as little as possible, following rules, all of these things are consistent with best behavioral practices. Uh, And yes, indeed, boldness, whether it looks like taking an oversized position or being extremely active in your trading behavior, uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that doesn't tend to, to work well for most folks.
0: So John says humans have dynamic risk preferences is my favorite line in the behavioral investor. How do you respond and deploy this to clients?
1: So thank you for reading. So the way that we think about this, right, is through this three-part, these three-part risk uh, system that I set up. Now we have to measure the dynamism of someone's risk preferences, but a lot of times that is not going to mean doing anything differently from a from a portfolio level. The dynamism is going to be more about when does that person need support? Uh, because look, there's there's realities in play. Like there's realities in play with respect to your tolerance and capacity that are going to say, hey, it doesn't matter uh, how risk averse you are if you don't take a certain level of risk you're not going to survive, right? You're not going to make it to retirement intact. So our awareness of the dynamism, our awareness of that risk composure, I think is most important for knowing when uh, to, to intervene on, on behalf of a client from an advisor perspective or, or knowing when we as an individual investor uh, might be most prone to self-sabotage or poor decision-making. So I think it's important to know how likely we are for this uh, risk composure to throw us off course, because even an awareness of that can sort of inoculate you against bad behavior. Like personally, my risk composure is very low. I am extremely neurotic when it comes to when it comes to my money, and and no amount of books I've written has has made me any different. And so, an awareness of that helps me to understand that that when I feel panicked, that that panic is a, is a result of, of my particular psychology. It helps me to allocate my assets in a way that's going to minimize volatility. And it's led me to pay an advisor uh, to to help me with that. So that awareness is, is critical, I think.
0: So, Danielle, just in the sort of last minute or so, I'd love to just return to this idea of investing in stressful times and just leave uh, listeners with some sort of practical comfort. Um, just tell us briefly about the deleterious effects of stress and perhaps some ways that investors might be able to reduce or perhaps better manage their stress.
1: So it's a great question. We could spend hours talking about stress. I mean, just suffice it to say that that stress is implicated in in every bad <laughs> in every bad medical and psychological outcome. But I think there's been a, a very particular type of stress that's been at the forefront over the last couple of years. In the height, I live in Atlanta, and at at the height of COVID. Uh, the calls to suicide hotlines were up 400%. And and a lot of it was around loneliness and relational disconnectedness. And and relational connectedness is one of the hallmarks of good mental health. Uh, It's one of the ways that we get better. It's one of the ways that that our uh, mental health is buoyed. And on the flip side, we know the research shows that loneliness has real physical impacts on us. So it's, it's twice as bad for our health as obesity. Uh, it's equal to the impact of, of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So sort of the, the emotional and the relational disruption we've all suffered over the past 10 years has been profound. And now we're kind of thrust back into having to get back into real life and real relationships. And it, it feels at least in my case, like we're a little awkward or out of practice. So one of the frameworks I like to use to, to think about wellness and stress management comes from Martin Seligman, and, and it's called the PERMA model. And it's sort of the five pillars of a happy life. And I'll, I'll touch on them real quickly. The P in PERMA is for positive experiences, which is just like fun. You know, it's going on a walk, eating an ice cream cone, going to Disney World, you know, whatever fun looks like in your life, just a fun, joyful activity. Uh, The E is for engagement, which is deep work, uh, uh, either work at your job that you find sort of rewarding and deep, or or it could be a hobby. I play guitar as sort of my form of engagement. Uh, The R is for relationships, keeping those relationships strong. The M is for meaning, which is um, working for something bigger than yourself. It could be a, a spiritual or religious practice. It could be volunteerism, yoga, charitable activity, a hundred things, but sort of getting outside of yourself and, and uh, attending to uh, the well-being of the world and the well-being of your spirit. And the A is for advancement, which is just learning a little something every day, like being, being a little bit better today than you were yesterday whether that's you know fitter, smarter, whatever it is, just doing something uh, to make progress. And so I think this, this PERMA model by Martin Seligman is a really useful roadmap for thinking about holism and wellness in life. And I think that as we sort of reemerge after this two years, I think it's a great, a great way to think about and examine our own wellness.
0: So many great takeaways, Daniel. Sadly, uh, that's all we have time for today. Um, I want to sa- thank the audience for tuning in and thank you, Daniel, for being here. Um, we hope you listen to our next episode. Uh, Market Watch Managing Editor for Enterprise, Nathan Vardy, will speak with Sander Gerber. CEO of Hudson Bay Capital, about how he manages risk at his $15 billion hedge fund and his recent work with Nobel Prize winner Harry Markowitz on measuring portfolio optimization. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a lovely day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.